So we're going to finish up today at the end of our The Heart of Anger series. Um, I looked this morning and it looks like we're close to about 50 pages of notes for this sermon series. And so uh, we're going to end it today. This is the last message on it. The title of the message is Discipling Others with Sinful Anger. We've worked this whole time on the idea of how to look at sinful anger, the heart of it. That's what we've been working on. Now we want to have this last message on, okay, we've got all this. Now, what do we do from here? And I would say this message um, will quickly leave you in anything you've learned if there's not a discipling of others. One of the best ways you can ever help help even, even yourself is actually actively disciple others. Anything that God has showed you that you've learned, disciple others. But one thing a person has to be discipled in is the ability to remember to dismiss the kids at children's church. <laughs> I got I got flag I got you know Pentecostal like flag waving going on back there. So I, my wife uh, is today. She's a, we rotate back there. She's got today. She was doing this, and so I was like, "Sweet, she's slain in the spirit." <laughs> I expect her to come in here and run some circles around and all that. But yeah, so. Parents, you can now dismiss your kids to children's ministry. And then we'll save the flag waving for later. <clears throat> so, uh, I don't even know what I was saying before, to be honest with you. I forget what I... <laughs> Does anybody remember where I was at? Okay, now, good. Now we're there. Okay. I was like completely lost my train of thought. <clears throat> I'm so glad to be... Uh, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I'm not, by the way, I'm not joking with anybody that has like a more Pentecostal or Simply God background. I'm just saying I could never pastor in a situation like that. I would never be able to remember where I left off. So I'm glad I have, I'm more, I have Baptist training, all right? So it's kind of the way it is. Okay, so here's what's really important, um, discipling others. If you really want to work on anger in your life, disciple others with anger in their life. Now, that may sound contradictory, like, who am I? But actually, the Lord will do a great work on your soul when you do this. Now, so, all of you know that, um, so, pastors, when you get into pastoral ministry, a lot of times you may focus on different areas, and really, in, when you're doing ministry, you can't study and, and kind of know, know everything, uh, not that you'll ever know anything, everything, but you kind of find through, through ministry, you'll start to kind of find your lane where this is the area that I really want to focus more intently and do more of my research, my study and development. And so for me, it came the area of biblical counseling. My, and, and really, when I say biblical counseling, I, sometimes I, I hate using that word counseling because then you get this idea of a couch, you're laying down someone, and then like Pastor Nick's like saying like, what do you think, right? Where that's not how real counseling works. Um, sometimes I just, you'll hear me call counseling remedial discipleship, right? That's all it is. It's discipleship. So years ago when I decided that, hey, I, I'm tired of sending my people to counselors that tell them terrible advice, but then also sometimes these counselors just drain them of resources. I decided to go get my own degree so I could be confident only to get that degree and then to get to the end of the degree and go, wait a minute, I've been doing this the whole time. If you know God's word, you're competent to counsel the people of the church are competent to counsel. And so that was kind of my you know, push-off for why I kind of decided to focus most of my research on practical theology, 
How does the Word of God practically work in people's lives? So that's why I went the biblical counseling remedial discipleship route. But I will tell you something that I never knew God would do in the midst of all this. A benefit to myself that I never first saw, nor did basically any beginner introduction biblical counseling book actually tell me. And was that every bit of counseling, I would actually be doing a lot of counseling of myself. And the very things I would tell people will be great reminders to myself. So even when, when I have situations that these are, when you have hard situations, and sometimes situations can be hard, it's actually really good because I can't remember everything I've ever studied. I can't remember everything I've put in. I have to rehearse and rehearse. So every time a situation arises that I'm addressing in remedial discipleship, in counseling, man, it's a great opportunity for my own soul, right? As much as I've counseled people from marriage to anger to anxiety to lust to guilt to blame shifting to depression, these are all things that I'm telling myself in the moment. These are great reminders for my soul. It is a sanctifying experience. So the reason I want to end this series with this idea of discipling others is this is how you actually put things into work for yourself long term. And by the way, just so you understand what's going on in Nick's head, which that's a dangerous thought. So the way I kind of work is you'll see me preach through Old Testament book, New Testament book. But in between those, you'll see me preach some topical series. Sometimes if they're a long series like 12 minor prophets, right? We'll chop it up in the middle and do a couple topical series. And the topical series I do, to be honest with you, it's really a lot of times listening to the body and then finding out those things that real people need more discipleship in and trying to create a tool that you can use. So if you look at our website, there's stuff on depression, on anxiety, on forgiveness in topical series that are meant for you to be able to access again and use as you talk to somebody about forgiveness, as you talk to somebody about anxiety or depression, or now we have one officially that's there for anger. And so uh, that's some of the reasons I even do a particular series. It's to be a discipling training tool for later accessibility. One of the oldest series that you actually see on our website um, is a series on forgiveness that I preach. I believe I was about the second or second year that I was here um, that I have referred people back to over and over and our people have used. So this is no less, this series is meant to be something to not only use for ourselves, but in our discipling. So the title of today's message is Discipling Others with Sinful Anger. We focus a lot on ourselves, how we're handling this. But now let's focus on what do we do with this long term? What do we do with this in our discipling efforts? So one, if you're a note taker, if you're taking an outline, I've got a 13-point outline, um, although I may be, you know, I have a lot of Baptist training, a little bit of non-denominational training. Um, I've never stuck to just the three points in a poem. It always seems to kind of come out the unique way that I can. So here's number one, discipling others with sinful anger. Number one, become a student of the person you are discipling. Become a student of the person you are discipling. If there's someone that you're helping with sinful anger, study them, get to know them, gather a lot of data about them, get to know their triggers, get to know their nonverbal behavior, look at their face. Look at how when they get angry, does their breathing increase? Do their nostrils flare? Do they let out an exasperated, an exasperation like, 
<sighs> you know, find the nonverbals, the eye rolls. Don't y'all love it when people roll their eyes at you? Isn't that like the, you know, all you have parents, you know, if your kids ever roll their eyes at you and you just thought like, man, I will rip out your gullet right now. Like, are you kidding me? Find those nonverbals, great signals. Study that person. Get to know them even in community. The best counseling that will ever happen will be people within your community. Those are the people that know you, that see you, that live, work, and play around you. People in your small group, in your discipleship group, in your church. When you read the scriptures, the best counselors are those who know the word of God and know you. So if you're going to counsel someone on anger, it's good to have a friendship with them. That's the best kind of counseling. Now, I've, I've in, in times and seasons, have counseled people outside of our church. I don't do as much of that anymore. as kind of be a special occasion, typically. But, um, but here's the, the deficit that has always been, I don't really know those people. But you know who I do know? is people that are part of my church, right? Who's your best counselor? It's your pastor. It's your elders. It's your ladies. It's your men. It's the people of your own church body. Those are actually your best counselors. Because they get to know you. So be a student of the person you are discipling. Um, now take your Bible, go over to James chapter 3. We'll reference some different scriptures to kind of help you see that. James chapter 3. We'll spend a lot of times in the book of James here today just referencing it. We've referenced it before. We'll do a little bit more now. By the way, some of you might be asking, what are we going to study next after you finish this? Um, well, there'll be a New Testament study. I've, I haven't quite landed yet. Um, so it may be Luke, it may be Second Corinthians, it may be James, or it may be, I've been thinking about doing a series of, of just taking the four Gospels and doing kind of a flyby, but giving you uh, main discipleship passages that you can use to address the many problems that, that disciples will face, that even we face. I, I don't know. The Lord, the Lord has to give me clear direction on that. When you look at James chapter 3, um, and you look at verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 12. We're going to come back to it. If you want to open it up there, we'll reference it throughout the message. But you want to get to know their worship and desires. So when you're a student, one of the things I ask people all the time when I'm doing counseling is, when, whenever that word is subject of anger, whenever that angry episode happens, that sinfully angry episode, the question I'll ask is, what were you thinking when that happened? What were you thinking when that happened? Now, why is that? Because that's the best way to find out what's really going on with the heart. So we see motivational factors that are always involved. Like if you go to James 4.1, we're going to be picking back and forth. It says, we've read this before, by the way, in this series. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and you do not have, so you murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So sometimes when you're, you got to, number one, become a student of the person you're discipling who's struggling with sinful anger. And when, whatever, when you're spending time with them and they are reviewing that week and there's an angry episode, you're asking the question, what were you thinking? Because you're trying to find out. What, what were your motivations? What were you fighting for? What were you lusting after? What were you envious for? And oftentimes you'll find, we ask a person and say, well, you yelled at your husband. Why did you yell at your husband? 
Well, what were you thinking when you were yelling at him? He's not listening to me. Okay, so that's what you were thinking. So what does this reveal about your heart, about what, how you view your husband listening to you? That you would be willing to act sinful to get it. Oh, so it's a good thing that your husband would be listening to you, but it seems like have you made that a God that he won't, that he won't, listen, to, that, that he won't listen to you? So, is, is, so who's, you understand the moment you're now pointing out, you see that there's a worship that's off right here. You have... Worship the creature and not the creator. You're trying to get to heart motivation. So study, study, study that person. Get to know them. Get to ask questions. So number one, become a student of that person that you're going to disciple who's struggling with sinful anger. You might be thinking, I don't know if you're thinking this, but if you're thinking, that'll never happen. There'll never be anybody that struggles with anger around me. That's only because... As a result of COVID, you now work in your own home with a computer all day and leave to go nowhere but use the bathroom. People are all around. You just may not be aware because no one works in the office anymore. I promise you they're there. If you're like, well, I'm just not in that environment. I'll give you a, I'm going to give you a radical experiment because I, we can, I can help you today, today find angry people. Does anybody want to find angry people today? Okay, today. Okay, here's how you can do it. Walk outside your door, take a look at all the houses around you, knock over to your house for a meal, and you'll find some angry people, right? And if that doesn't work, then another thing is just go up to Walmart, right? And find that there's a thousand people in the store and like two people checking people out. And it's so bad that that the self-checkout line has like a line wrapped around the corner. Can you tell what's bothering me? All right. Number two, become a student of yourself when it comes to anger. Become a student for yourself, of yourself. Now, I'm not meaning that you need to go in and, and think well of yourself or try to like build this idea of self-esteem. Just a side note, the idea of self-esteem is not biblical. It's nothing God has ever promoted to us. And if this phrase ever comes out of our mouths, well, the per- problem with that person is they don't have enough self-esteem. That is a terrible conclusion that, not, that cannot be supported from God's word. But I will tell you this. Become a student of yourself when it comes to anger when you're discipling others with sinful anger. And here's what I mean. When you look back at James chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, you're helping them with the source of quarrels. But now you look at for yourself what are the source of quarrels. Like when it was a Saturday morning and when it was a nice, you know, for instance, it was a picture this. It's a nice fall day because it's coming, right? Can y'all feel it, right? The first time the temperature's not as hot, it's like you know it's coming. Picture this. It's a Saturday morning. It's a nice fall day. The leaves have changed color. Everybody's doing the pumpkin patch. It's now the perfect weather where you can now wear shorts, but now you can actually put maybe that hoodie on to kind of cover over everything that you want to, right? You just feel snug and warm and you're going about your day. Y'all headed to Perkins. It's breakfast time, right? Let's go to Perkins. And all of a sudden, unbeknownst to you and from somewhere you don't know where it came, there's a big argument that ensues on the way to Perkins on a Saturday morning on a nice fall day with the windows rolled down and the leaves are changing and you've finally got to put on that favorite hoodie that's been hanging up for the last three months in the sweltering heat, right? Sound familiar? And then all of a sudden, something happens that's so small, but there's an eruption. And all of a sudden, the blueberry muffin at, you know, that you cut in half and 
put that whole little cup of butter in and set it on top to let it melt. You know, y'all like this word picture I'm painting for you, right? Doesn't seem so satisfying as it did before because of the eruption that happened in the car on the way. And what am I telling you? Well, that's a great time for you to be a student of your own anger. Because in that moment, you're probably pointing at the other person in the car thinking they're the whole reason this thing exploded. But that's not, once again, look at James 4, 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You see that? You ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasure. So become a student of your own desires, your own sinful desires that increasingly provoke you to sinful anger. Know them. Because the better, the better you know that, the better that you're going to be able to help someone else. The better you're going to be able to help when you say to that person, when you were angry this past week, tell me what you were thinking. You're going to be speaking from someone who's already done some self-surgery themselves. I've referenced it. You don't have to turn over to it right now, but I've referenced it enough. You should know it. It's probably one of the most famously quoted verses in the scriptures. It's Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged, right? But when you read that passage, you find that the premium in, and actually that passage is about looking at your own sin so you can help those. So one of the greatest things you can do is when you're helping people and in, in taking into consideration Matthew 7, is that you get the chance to look at your, the own logs in your own eye. Every time I'm trying to help someone with sinful anger, I'm actually helping myself in the moment. I'm looking at those big logs. In fact, I'm knowing this, that if I'm not looking at the log in my own eye, I won't be able to counsel this person and take the speck out of theirs because I'll be, I'll be blinded with this big, huge cedar that's, that's in my face. And so I've got to do something about it. Parenthetically, I also know that if I'm not dealing with that, then the way I deal with them won't be very grace-filled. You know, I'll, I'll use stupid and silly tactics in the midst of it, such as just stop it, right? I won't focus on any heart change. I won't call them to obedience. And in fact, if this is the fifth time I've talked to them about this subject matter, I'll just probably get a little exasperated and tell them, well, you're just a jerk and let's stop meeting. If you ever counseled somebody, it can really get difficult when they're entrenched in dominating sins. And for the one who is doing the discipling, it's a test of your own, it's a test of your own worship before the Lord as well. In fact, doing good things for people can become an idol in of itself, can even cause a, can even cause war inside you. So become a student of yourself. Get to know your own sinful anger. Get to know, get to know your triggers. Get to know the sinful wickedness of your own heart and the prevailing sinful desires that you just want to spend on your own passions. So that's number two. So become a student of the person you're discipling. Become a student of yourself when it comes to anger. Number three, let them become, let them become a student of your life. So become a student of the person you're discipling. Become a student of yourself when it comes to your own anger. Number three, let them become a student of your life. Invite them in to watch you. Invite them in to go with you. Invite them to see when you get put in pressure situations and see how you respond to that. Let them come over for dinner and see that as you're trying to get things together and you and your spouse are, you know, trying to do hospitality well you know, there can be the little tiff and, agree- and disagreement that could explode, but you're finding a way to, to actually 
Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let them see how you handle difficulties. If you hold your place in James chapter 4, look over at Proverbs. And Proverbs 13, 20, I think, really gives a great emphasis to this idea. We should always teach, but some, that there's this thing that some things are caught more than taught. There's a truth to it, but you also still need to teach. I would say it's a both and. So it says in 1320 of Proverbs, He who walks with the wise will be what? Wise. But the friend of fools will suffer harm. Those you're discipling need to see your life. Need to see how you handle life. If, you're, if you've got something even difficult going on in your life that you know could be even provoking to you, might be a good time to invite them to come along. Let them see how you handle it. When they see you get squeezed, how do you respond? Number four, aggressively, aggressively study the scriptures concerning anger. Aggressively study it. Study it so much that you know it backwards and forwards. Study it so much that you can reference it multiple times. Know it backwards and forwards. We've used many scriptures in this series, especially from this passage in James, like review it, know it. You know, a lot of people think, some, some people have kind of have said like, when we've, I've spent time in remedial discipleship, they'll think, uh, oh, you know, Nick, you just automatically may know these scriptures, they just roll off. And I would say, I forget more than I can ever remember. I really do. It's, it's near impossible but what is there? It's a, there's a constant repetition, a constant restudy, a constant relooking. And when you're actually helping somebody, don't just focus on the one scripture you're going to look at that next meeting, but keep focusing and reviewing all the scriptures concerning this subject matter. Because sometimes when you're actually in the midst of talking to them, you'll need to reference those and be able to be fluid enough. So I'll tell you, become a student of aggressively study anger in the scriptures. And then I would tell you this, um, study, have a good, consistent study time yourself. A lot of times when I'm discipling somebody, I may use a scripture passage that wasn't maybe on anger, but something in my own regular study was usable from God's word to inject that day. And it's really great because that, that, that injection of that fresh word that God had given me in his word that day was something useful and helpful for them. Now, you've noticed over the past couple of weeks, we've opened up, which... We're not supposed to call a bookstore, but a resource center, right? Where you can purchase books. We've put 30 books. These are books I've read. These books I would say yes and amen to. And there's two books in there that you can get on the subject of sinful anger. That if you read those books, you're going to hear. I mean, these are books that I've read, that I've given out, uh, read multiple times. I use them for teaching. I mean, you, when you read those books, you're going to hear like the voice of Nick. I mean, uh, just so you understand, like... I'm not like some genie or something like I just read and research. That's what you do. But they're there for you for this. We've recorded this for your use. We provide there's two great resources in there for your use. There's ample resources here. And so you want to study those. You want to review those. You want to go over those. This is probably one of the areas that 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 you could really be used by God where you live, work and play speaking into this issue. So one, become a student of the person you're discipling. Become a student of yourself when it comes to anger. 
Let them become a student of your life. Let them see your life. Let them be with you. Number four, aggressively study anger in the scriptures. Aggressively study this subject matter. Number five, praise God for the change that will take place in you. Now, this may sound weird to say that. You might be thinking, Nick, shouldn't you have said praise God for the change that will take place in them? And the reason I didn't say that is because I can't promise you that. <laughs> I can't. Man, there's so many people. If you've tried to disciple, if you've been doing discipling in your life, you understand this. Sometimes people burn out and they burn out fast. It just happens. I mean, and sometimes you don't know. Only the Lord does. You're, we're not responsible for how the letter gets opened. We're just responsible to deliver the mail. And so sometimes people burn out and flake out real fast, right? It used to really bother me in the earlier years of ministry until I kind of got to the point where I was like, man, I'm never going to make it if I get if I get messed up every time someone flakes out on me on, on, on things when it comes to discipleship or I, I, I'm just going to I'm never going to want to do this. So I had to start seeing discipling as a call of obedience, as a call to Jesus. And so after that, it was a, a lot better. On a side note, I also realized that at times I had made people idols in my life and had considered that if I'm going to disciple you, you owe me some loyalty. And I'm a bad savior, right? They only know Jesus' loyalty. That's what they owe it to. But that's why I'm, I'm going to tell you number five is praise God for the change that will take place in you. In you. There may be change that will take place in them. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I've seen it. And by the way, it's kind of like where the wind blows. There's been times where I've spent times with people and I'm thinking like, there's no way this is making a change in their life. I just don't even see it. And then like, it's like the wind blowing where you don't know. It's like, boom, you see them blossom. There's other times where people come in and man, they'll tell you all the right things. They'll do the homework. They'll do everything. And then it's like they've got no root within themselves, but the sun comes out and they burn up and dry up. You just don't know. But I do know this. Although I can't predict how someone you're going to disciple who's struggling with simple anger is going to change, I can predict that you will change. The counselor, the discipler, will always experience change in the midst of it. Anytime I've helped somebody in this area, it's been a great opportunity for me to confess my sin. Even in, this is what I love, helping people with sinful anger gives me a chance to confess my sinful anger, right? That's a wonderful opportunity. God doesn't change. I'll learn to have to try to live out what I tell them. It'll be amazing. I, I may have a, a, a week that's, that's kind of, I'm kind of weak and um, I'm weak in the flesh that week and I give somebody a bit of counsel from the scriptures about sinful anger and then I have to walk out of there. Now I have an opportunity to obey what I've disobeyed all week. A change happens in you. We're reminded of the deceitfulness of sin in our own life and our easy double-mindedness when we're doing discipling. I love it. In fact, I would be scared as a pastor, as a Christian, if there wasn't some kind of active discipleship happening in my life where I was addressing issues and topics in people's world. I would be scared. You know, when I was being trained initially for pastoral ministry, uh, my first degree, one of the things they told us was don't counsel your people. Focus on research, study, the word of God, get up, preach to your people. And to be honest with you, that would be pretty awesome. I mean, I'm just saying, like, I love everybody. I love you all. But it would be so easy just to kind of go, I need eight hours a day in the library, just me and my books, right? That, now, you might think, like, no, Nick, you're, you're so outgoing and you just love to be around people. And it's like, I don't know. I just, 
trying to love Jesus, and Jesus keeps making me do that kind of stuff, right? And so, like, he's good. But, I mean, I do have this secret fantasy, and some of you know this. I mean, it's a sick fantasy, but sometimes I have this fantasy of, like, being locked up in prison so I can just read all my books, right? And, I mean, that's, you know, I know it's wrong, but it just thinks, like, man, how awesome would it be? Like, I could just, like, sit in a place all day and have no responsibilities but just to read, like, read and work out? Like, how awesome would that be? I mean, sometimes, man, I've been around enough pastors in life where I've wondered, like, did you really want to do ministry or did you just want a justification to read books, right? Like, like, do you love people? But I tell you, every bit of counseling that I've done with people, every bit of discipling, it's made me continually aware of my own sin. It's sanctified me. It's brought me to the end of myself. It's reminded me of how good Jesus is. Look back over at James chapter 3. I see an example of it. In James chapter 3, in verse 13, where we've just gotten through talking about the tongue, we're going into motivations about in chapter 4, but, but in the same paragraph, verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show you by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. When, when there's, there's this, James is talking about a wise person. What an unwise person looks like is verse 14, 15, and 16. But you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant. Do not lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every evil practice. Now, he's, we, he just got through referencing the tongue, how the tongue is uncontrollable and bad and bad and good things shouldn't come from the same tongue. Cursings and blessings shouldn't come from the same source. There should be blessings. And what when it isn't happening, that's because there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in verse 14 of chapter 3. So, but what happens is this. When I counsel people, I'm continually brought back to who Jesus is, the good news of the gospel for my soul. And God starts to work something about this selfish ambition, this self-exaltation that we're so easy to do. God starts to bring to the idea of this bitter jealousy that's in my soul towards others. And then God starts to bring me to own repentance to where I now can now walk back in wisdom. The verse 13, the gentleness of wisdom, now kind of applies when you go down to verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, it's not double-minded, Without hypocrisy, there's no being a hypocrite. So what I'm trying to point out in this text is this idea of when I help people with anger, I help my own anger. I'm confronted with my own selfish ambition, my own bitter jealousy, this this sinful way of it's not wisdom that I think is wisdom. Everybody thinks wisdom is setting up this self-exalted world. That's what verse 13 through 16 is pointing out in Whenever we have a self-exalted wisdom, we tend to run our mouth a lot. We do. And we tend to have a lot of sinful anger. But when I'm helping people with anger, I'm helping myself. And what happens is, verse 13, the gentleness of wisdom. What happens is, verse 17, I see the fruits in my life of peace, considerableness, full of mercy and good fruits. I've had people before say, well, you're just a person that walks with a lot of mercy and grace towards people. And I would say that... I don't know if that's really me. Hopefully that's just a reflection of like 
there's a life's not about my glory, but it's about God's glory. And like there's a continual fighting against sinful anger. Like God has brought this kind of wisdom of how to live life. So when you're counseling people, this is a, a work of God that he does in your own life. It's a blessed, it's a blessed life. It's a good life. I would be scared. That's why I told you earlier, my bachelor degree, they trained us not to counsel our people. I would be scared not to counsel people, to be honest with you. And in fact, I've been around enough pastors, fellowship around enough pastors, to notice the pastors that are probably going to make it that are not. Right? And I want to I catch something. This isn't all, all the time, but almost across the board I've noticed this. The pastors that don't counsel with their people typically don't do it well. And they typically don't do it for a long time. I'm just telling you. And if they do do it for a long time, that pastor typically is haughty, prideful, impossible to bring any correction or admonishment to, and is really kind of a person that you'd really never invite out for lunch. So God doesn't work, I'm telling you. It's a beautiful thing. And you got to know this when you're actually discipling people because it gets very, very hard. When people don't listen to you, when they're stubborn, when they disagree with you, it gets very hard when you're discipling angry people. Because we do all understand this. If you disciple angry people, they're probably going to be easy to do what? Get angry. And who do you think they may easily get angry at? You. I mean, other sins are different. Someone's dealing with lust or anxiety or depression or, you know, multitude. I mean, guilt, unforgiveness, bitterness. They typically aren't going to get that, that angry at you. They're coming to you. They're, you know, but when someone has anger, they can quickly turn on you and point it right out at you. What a sanctifying experience that is. That's why I love this subject matter. It's so difficult, the sanctifying thing of... Man, I love it when you disciple somebody and you get provoked. Now, don't try to do that to me intentionally, right? But I'm just saying, there's this, there's this godly aspect of you get provoked. And what are you going to do in James chapter 3? Are you going to lash out in selfish ambition? How dare you talk to me like that? Are you going to lash out in bitterness? Don't you know everything I've done for you in this time? Don't you see how I've taken from my family or given my time to you, right? That's going to actually lead you to earthly, natural, demonic things. In the end, there's going to be, verse 16, disorder in every evil practice. But if things are about the glory of God, not your glory, and you can see the work of God even in your own life in the midst of working with difficult people, you'll see, verse 17, peaceful, peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. It's a work of God. I will be scared. I'm scared for you as my congregation if you don't counsel angry people in your life. I really am. Because more than likely, you may not be getting confronted with the anger in your own life. So simple. Do it. All right. Let's end the message now. Just do it. Okay. Verse 6. I'm sorry, not verse 6. Point number 6. Expect progress when you're working with someone. Expect progress, but not perfection. Expect progress, but not perfection. Don't be surprised if you give them you give them homework, take home stuff, you, you work with them, you counsel them, and you don't see perfection. Look for progress. That's what you're looking for. Sanctification is progressive. Know, know that you have a person who's coming to you who more than likely is very double-minded. If you look in James chapter 4, verse 8, 
He points out this in this whole text. We covered this before. But if you look at verse 8, he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. This is what you're trying to actually encourage these people you're discipling. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're in the subject matter of sinful anger. We're in the subject matter of wars in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. We're just a couple verses later. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You're going to have double-minded people. So expect progress, but not perfection. If you can do that and set your right, and you understand I'm dealing with a double-minded person, that consistent work of God that's going to happen in your time together, God will use that. Number seven, use narrative examples to draw them into the discipling. Use narrative examples. So there's a combination. You want to give the very didactic teaching kind of elements of Ephesians 4, 31, 32, James chapter 4, verse 1. You want to use that teaching element, those, that, that very didactic teaching kind of element. But also, take them to the narratives to help them immerse themselves in the story. Now, our narrative stories, for instance, in the Old Testament, are not just there only for us to learn something from. There's an element that scriptures tell us they're there for our learning Ultimately, there's an overarching emphasis that we're get, everything's pointing towards Jesus. We're trying to get to the good news. It's the overarching arc of all of Scripture. All of Scripture is really about Jesus and God's, God's redemptive plan. We see that. But I do want you to say you can take different passages and immerse themselves in the story. For instance, when you're dealing with angry people, and we've done this. If you've noticed in this series, you'll, you, you'll look at the, like, the life of Joseph, right? Remember Joseph? He's an example of someone who's done wrong, who doesn't respond. I mean, if anybody was ever tempted and could. But what undergirded Joseph at the end of Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Review through those narratives. Have them read those narratives. What about Cain? His unjustified anger towards his brother and really the heart of anger that was reflected in him. Use those narrative stories, use those passages to help immerse them in this subject matter. What about Jonah and his unjustified anger towards God and his hatred for the people of Nineveh? And even so bad that he was he knew God was good was anger about God's goodness, right? Like so like immerse people in this in the narratives so that they they know that they're not the only person that ever struggled with this. There are others. And we see what God has done. Number eight Return to the heart-exposing motives. Return to the heart-exposing motives. Go back to James chapter 4. You'll probably work with somebody when it comes to sinful anger, and you'll camp out on James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10, multiple times. In fact, you may read this multiple times. You might decide to read this you know, every single time you meet together for several times. You're going to be revisiting James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. It is such a great passage for getting to the heart motives. I mean, how can you not? What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the pleasures that wage war in your members? Just about everybody who struggles with sinful anger is looking to point a finger at somebody else, right? If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be angry. But James 4 doesn't allow you to point the finger at other people. It just allows you to turn around and point the finger at yourself. Even further in the book of James, you look at chapter 1, verse 1, verse 14 and 15, You'll, you'll review this scripture over and over. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. You'll have, account, you'll have that person constantly want to blame shift and blame it on somebody else. Well, 
if he wouldn't have said this, I wouldn't have done this. Or if my son wouldn't have said this, this wouldn't have happened. Or if this person at work, or if my in-law wouldn't have said this, which that never happens, I understand, right? But if they wouldn't have said this, this wouldn't have happened. Well, actually, the scriptures say we're enticed by our own lusts. Verse 15, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully matured, brings forth death. You'll have people say, well, Satan made me do it. No, it was your own, it was your own sinful nature made you do it. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't want to subtract Satan out of... We don't want to give Satan too much credit. We don't want to give him no credit. I mean, we do see in James chapter 3 that it says the wisdom that's, that the, this wisdom is not coming down from above when we're selfish and have bitter jealousy. It's earthly, natural, and demonic. We don't want to subtract that. But it, return to the heart-exposing motives. Sometimes there's some questions you can ask that help expose someone's motives. I'll give you three questions that you can ask that expose a person's motives, right? Let's say the situation was um, a husband and wife were on their way to Perkins once again. Remember, nice fall day, people put on their hoodies with their shorts and their Crocs, right? It's just like the perfect Saturday. You're starting to roll the windows down. You get the picture. And let's let's say that something happened that week, um, for instance, um, the husband the husband had told had made some plans without asking his wife, right? And now they got you got plans Saturday night. Sounds plausible, doesn't it? All of a sudden, there's an anger, there's an angry episode that breaks out that she's saying towards him. And then when you get a chance to spend time with her during that moment, here's three questions you could ask. When that angry moment, let's answer a couple questions and you fill in the blank. I must not. I must not be blank. Your job is to make blank. I'm going to give you this. Just hang with me. Because you failed, you are bad, and I blank. So in this situation, the wife that got angry at the husband who made some plans on a Saturday night without consulting her, she didn't want. She kind of wanted her Saturday night to be free to cook a meal for church on Sunday, right? You like I slid that in there? I must not, I must not be inconvenienced. Your job is to make sure I get the free time I want. Because you failed and you are bad, I'm now angry at you. I'm trying to look at the, remember that's like heart motives in the moment, right? You're trying to ask, like, what were you thinking in the moment when you were angry? What were the ruling idols? It could be another situation. For instance, let's say that your, let's say that your kid, it's time to go to bed at night, right? And let's say you got young kids, and your young kids just aren't, your toddlers just not getting together with the act, right? <laughs> That's what I love. If you ever want to be tested about your anger, then have a child and have, you know, and wait till they get to the toddler age, right? That's the toddler, un- complete unpredictable. But this is why I would encourage you, like, when should you have babies? As soon as possible, so God can work that anger out of you with that toddler, right? God can just sanctify you, like, get it quick, get it done. You'll get to live a happier life after that. (laughs) Someone's thinking like, that's the worst advice I've ever heard. (laughs) So it could be like this. I must not be kept up late. It's your job, my toddler child, to make sure you completely cooperate with everything that's going on. And because you failed me, you were bad and I yelled at you. I screamed at you. Right? You understand these are heart motives, what causes wars, rumors within us, right? 
So return to heart-exposing motives. That's why I'm always asking the person, tell me what you were thinking. What were you worshiping in that moment? Number nine. So I'll review for you if you want to have it. Become a student of the person you're discipling. Become a student of yourself when it comes to anger. Let them become a student of your life. Aggressively study anger in the scriptures. Praise God for the change that will take place in you, even if it doesn't take place in them. Expect progress but not perfection when discipling a person with anger. Use narrative examples from scripture to draw them into the discipling. Number eight, return to the heart-exposing motives. Number nine, emphasize God's righteous judgment. Emphasize God's righteous judgment. I'll give you an example. Back over to James chapter 1. That's how we're going to hang out. There's other, if you're taking notes, you could write down Romans 12, 14 through 21. You could write down 1 Peter 2, 22 through 23. You could write down 1 Peter 4, 19. But we're just sticking in James. And one of the things that happens is when you're helping someone with sinful anger, more than likely there's others in their life that have, have been, I mean, like usually these wars happen you know, a lot of people are causing war. Like, war usually doesn't happen with just one person, right? There's usually two warring countries. So what happens sometimes is they'll, you'll start walking with them, and they'll start maybe growing in the Lord's grace, but their spouse or children or co-worker or in-law or whoever doesn't seem to be making the same kind of progress, doesn't have the same access to God's grace that, that, that they're availing themselves of. And they're thinking, this is terrible. They're getting away with it all. I can't believe this. One of the things you keep referring back to them and letting them know, no one gets away with anything. You worry about your soul. And if, if they have not changed and God's not done a work in them, that's between the Lord. I love James one nineteen and 20. Beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So that, that person you're counseling, you can say, your husband may still be an angry person, but you don't. You be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Because, verse 20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. God is righteous. He'll take care of it. Vengeance is his. He will repay, thus says the Lord. So you don't have to make sure and humble people, right? There's this idea that like, well, if I don't tell her back, there's never going to be any humility. Like, if I don't tell her back, she'll never correct herself. i got to get in her face, and i got to tell her what's up. Has that ever really worked? No, you actually just pretty much wounded her, scarred her, right? Made her fearful, right? And you haven't honored her as the weaker vessel. That's what you've done, right? And why is that? Because you don't think that God's righteous. You don't think that God can get his righteous vengeance and justice and judgment when people rebel against him. You don't have to correct angry people. God can take care of that. He's perfectly capable of doing his own thing. But what you are able to do is work on your own soul. You can make sure that in that situation, you're swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. You're not provoking that. And that you're doing this out of a heart that's been transformed because the motives have been changed. So emphasize God's righteous judgment. Sometimes when people come and they're and the other, maybe they're in some relationship where the other person continues the war with them, assure them that God will take care of them. They don't have to. Number 10, review, review, review Ephesians 4.31 and Ephesians 4.32. Take a look at it. We'll turn over there. I've shown you this multiple times. But if people sometimes need an outward diagnostic to see where their heart is at in the moment, 
They need an outward diagnostic to understand in the moment, is this sinful anger or not? I say, listen, if you manifest, sometimes you don't know what's going on in the soul until you get squeezed and all of a sudden what comes out, then you're starting to go like, whoops, man, I made an idol out of something. I didn't even know it until I got squeezed. I always point them to verse 31. If you see bitterness, this is Ephesians 4, 31, anger, wrath, shouting, slander, and malice. Guess what, friend? I can assure you 100% you are walking in sinful anger. And then you point them to verse 32. Verse 32, regardless of how they feel in the moment, verse 32 is the right call. Tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and kindness. In fact, you can take them over to Romans 12 and show them that actually, if you and your husband are having this issue, when you practice, how can you practice kindness back to him? Not to get something, but to give something for him. So emphasize these observational Review the observational marks of sinful anger in Ephesians 4.31. Then call them to obedience to Ephesians 4.32. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. By the way, kindness to one another. It's not kindness really when you're kind to people that are already kind to you. That's pretty easy. Kindness is really tested when someone is not kind to you and you're kind back. That's the true test. And by the way, you know what's really great about relationships where nothing can change. Like, here's the great thing about having children, all right? Here's the great thing about having a spouse. Here's the great thing about having, if you're single, having roommates, right? Here's the great thing. When you're in the same household, you can't escape each other very easy. And that's actually a very good and sanctifying thing. Why is that? Because you have an opportunity to practice verse 32, and practice it a lot. A lot. You have an opportunity to practice forgiveness a lot. You know who the people I get scared for the most in life, to be honest with you? is people that live alone and people that work alone all day. Those people I get really scared for. And I also say people who their involvement with any relationship and family is very minimal. They're just an island unto themselves. That person never has had a chance to be sanctified with what the one another relationships in life can, can happen. They're never going to be confronted with their own self-exaltation. In fact, I find even in years of kind of counseling people, do you know the hardest people to get like remarried or to even get married? You know, the hardest people I've noticed are people who have either say they've been divorced or say they've been a widow. And let's say it happened in their 40s and they've been and they've been single for 10 years, 15 years, and now they want to come into marriage, right? Those people have the hardest time. Why is that? Because they kind of develop life in a silo. They haven't had to work and repent around people. They haven't had to work through their sinful anger. They just kind of, life has just kind of been the way they kind of wanted it, right? And then now they're 55 and living single for 15 years, and then they try to come together, and all of a sudden they think like, man, marriage really doesn't work. It's like, No, actually, you're just selfish, and no one's put you in a position to realize your selfishness, right? So, take them back to these observational marks of verse 31 of this is what sinful anger looks like. You have people will use real words like, I wasn't wasn't angry at them, I was just frustrated. It's like, hmm, no, that's the same thing, right? Like, like it's, it's cute that you use the word that seems more docile, but no, that was actually anger, right? Well, no, I, 
I just don't like them, so I avoid them. Oh, verse 31 calls that bitterness. Okay, so let's like get back to what the scriptures say. Okay, last, last two things. Number 12, celebrate obedient. If you want number 11, I'll, I, I might have not said it clearly. Call them to obedience to Ephesians 4.32. Number 12, celebrate obedient steps and provide plenty of biblical hope. Celebrate obedient steps and provide biblical hope. Since you're, since you're, oh, you turned away from James. Well, we'll go ahead and I'll just read you back over at James. I did, probably didn't tell you to hold your place. You know, when people go through difficult times, you can always find some way to praise God. You can find some way to thank him. So, for instance, in James chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various what? He's like, count it all joy. What is that? Biblical hope? Like, count it all joy? That the testing your faith brings about perseverance? Let Verse 4, perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing? And then he goes on to talk about wisdom. So, you understand that celebrate every time you see just the smallest thing when you're discipling them. Celebrate that obedience. Then give them biblical hope. When I say biblical hope, not the, I hope all the, per, all the other people around you got their act together, but celebrate the, praise God for what he's doing in your life. And yes, that difficulty, right? That trial, that difficulty, God is building more character into your life. Like brother, sister, this is a good thing. Every difficult situation, every conflict is an opportunity to grow in his grace. Conflict's not bad. We don't go searching for it, but we don't throw our hands up and say, like, God, take my life now because of conflict. No, we, we celebrate his sovereignty and his purpose and well, the work of God that's going to do and transform us. And now last, but not least, go to James chapter 4. I'm sorry, James chapter 5. Go to the last verses. It's the last point of our anger series with the last verses of James. Here's number 13. When discipling someone with sinful anger... When we do it, be, be on the lookout. It may risk our friendship. It may risk it, but it's worth it. So if you're, I mean, honestly, if relationships are going in the body of Christ, this kind of stuff will happen. You will counsel people. And I'm telling you, there will be the potential that it may risk that friendship when you tell them truth. It could. It really could. But it's worth it. Why is it worth it? Because look what God says. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It may risk your relationship. Just going to tell you honestly. You're not going to paint this all rosy and be like everybody's going to sing your praise and stuff and like, oh, look... Look how they've helped me with my anger. No, they may turn on you. And the very wrath that they've been pouring out on others will get poured out on you. Absolutely can happen, but it's so worth it. Why is that? Because what if, perchance, you save them back from all the judgment and justice that they're incurring, that they're incurring anger is bringing in their life? And what if you actually have a redemptive aspect in their life where now there's a change? It's so worth it. And ultimately, we know it's worth it because we value the gospel. That's why in a moment, we're going to take communion. We're going to eat a meal. We're going to take communion. 
We're going to remember the gospel message. The gospel message has said this, that our sin was heinous and our sin is risky and our sin was bringing us death. But God did not withhold his son and sent his son freely to do the riskiest thing anybody could ever do. The riskiest thing. Jesus goes to the cross and suffers the wrath of God in our place. The riskiest thing that could ever happen. So why would we be afraid of doing that for others, right? Why would we be afraid to risk? Jesus has risked himself completely and satisfied God's wrath against us. And listen, if God's wrath has been turned from us because of the work of his son, why are we concerned about people's wrath towards us? Let me get this. You and I are ants. We're weak. We're puny. In fact, we could, we could be dead by the time. I mean, like if God didn't sustain us, the meal we're about to eat would probably poison us, right? I mean, this, be all honest with you. Doesn't that make you hungry now, right? Well, you know, just know. <laughs> that food that you eat with what loads of preservatives, right? These plates are going to be small today. Going to be plenty to go around. If God's sustaining grace was not on our bodies, it would poison us. So why are we afraid of someone puny who doesn't even have that kind of sovereignty, right? And we've got this all-powerful, all-knowing, the galaxies are uncountable and unfathomable because that's what he's like. Why are we so concerned about what others will do to us when the God of all heaven has said, my wrath has been turned from because of the work of my son? Like, so what? If they get angry at you, so what? As long as... As long as the son is not angry with you, man, you're okay. Like, you're going to be okay. Would you stand together and let's pray over this and have a time of singing to the Lord. And we're going to have our meal together. We're going to take communion. If you're here this morning and Jesus is not your Lord and King, I would tell you, here's the best thing I can tell you this morning. Jesus commands you to repent. That's what God wants. God wants you to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and King. God wants you to realize that you're a sinner that you've offended a holy God, that we're liars, murderers, thieves. We've lusted, we've killed, we've dishonored. That's us. That's all of us. And Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God against those sins, a holy God. And by faith, through grace, you can trust that Jesus is your sin sacrifice and you can be holy and clean before the Lord. That's the promise today. You can call out to him even now as I pray. You can ask for that same gift of grace. Would you pray with me? I'm so thankful for your word, for your truth, for our church body, for how we can fight against this deadly plague of sinful anger. And our people need your strength to review, rehearse, and to disciple others. We've got to disciple each other. This beginning level of even redemptive discipline in the church, it happens at the one-on-one level as we're addressing anger in each other's lives. Let this happen in our marriages, in our households with our children. Let it happen in our discipling with others in our groups. Let it happen. If someone's not here, may they call out to you now and be able to take communion as a new believer in Christ just here in a few moments. Bless the rest of our time. And God's people said,